Hey, read along in your own Bible as I read out loud. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It should be up on the screen for you as well. We're going to read verses 4 through 16, and I'm going to pray. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he, he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we just heard from Joe and Caroline and Andy, Lord, we thank you that you are developing and shaping each one of us individually as we are a part of the body. And so, Lord, for, for many in this room, this text in this idea of spiritual gifts and being a part of the body is not new. For some, it may be new. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would uh, fall fresh on this place to fill us with the beauty of Jesus and all that he has done to gift us these gifts and that we would be empowered, we would be inspired, we would be um, excited and joyful to see you use our gifts for the good of this church and for your global body, um, that you would use us mightily. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I've got a really good slogan for you. It, I think it's really unique. You ready for it? Make the world great again. <laughs> we'll get blue hats. Or maybe green. Make the world great again. Just something I've been working on. <laughs> Thinking about changing it for our uh, church motto. We need to make the world great again, don't we? Because it ain't so great. That is easy to declare, right? We can agree on that. We've got problems. Our world is deeply broken, right? We've got Syria. I mean, how long have they been fighting in Syria? It's kind of unbelievable. The Syrian government's still carpet bombing their own people. We have the leader of Turkey, the one civilized Islamic country out there we thought we had and we're friends with, are now jailing their political opponents. We have it in uh, embodied or emboldened Iran. We have China doing stuff to Hong Kong. We have, we have, oh, we've got certifiable nutcase running the country of North Korea, a nuclearized country. We, we have, that's just kind of the big geopolitical problems, right? I mean, 
If we think about even what our city or our state, when we begin to think about economic problems and social problems, sex trafficking and slavery around the world is on the rise and opiate addictions and school shootings have become something that we don't even get much press in and we don't even pay attention to because they happen so often. And we haven't even begun to deal with the biggest problem, which is what? Our spiritual problems. But I have good news that you aren't happy with the world. Well, God isn't either. That God isn't happy with this brokenness. He, he has said that after he made the world, he looked at it, and he, what, did, what did God declare about this world? He said, this is good. This is so good. And so now he looks at it. What do you think he thinks of it now? He thinks, this is no, no, this is no good. This is bad. And so he invades this world, doesn't he? The kingdom has begun to come. We love to sing it, and we'll sing it in a couple months. Joy to the world, let heaven and nature sing. Forget making America great again. God is here to make the whole cosmos, every jot and tittle, every square foot of this world. What does it say? To make his blessings flow. Where? Where all the curse may be found. And if I look around, the curse is around every corner. And it's in those places that God's joy and his blessing is coming. And what is God's strategy to bring about his blessing into a cursed world, to bring about his world and to make it new, to make it great again? What is his strategy? Who is he using to bring this about? This body called the church. The church. The church of Jesus Christ is God's primary agent of hope for the world. You and me. That's frightening, isn't it? He comes to make his blessings flow and he comes to do it through us. This is the plan of God. He intends to make creation, to make the whole world great again, and he intends, it, he intends to do it through these kingdom outposts called local churches through which the people break forth and do great things in their city, and he makes those outposts a safe place where healing and redemption can happen amongst their, those people and amidst their walls. But you know, you may or may not notice, the means by which God is has empowering his church to bring about this change in this world is through something he calls gifts. There is a, if you're familiar with not the Lord of the Rings, but uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you'll recognize there at the various parts, if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's these children. And once they've come to meet Aslan, who is the godlike Messiah figure, that what they are given after he comes and after he does his work, as he says, I have come to make all things new, he then gives them gifts. One of them gives a healing potion. So that when those who are wounded and hurt in this world may be healed in the midst of battle. He gives others a sword and others a bow and arrow. These are the gifts that God has given to his church. So that we might be a part of making this world great again. Now you may not know this. But spiritual gifts are actually a matter of great consternation. Of great, this is actually a controversial subject that we're going to dive into for this week and next, primarily because we're a people who are so full of pride. There are some theological debates, but primarily it's because we're a people who love our gifts and just downplay the gifts of others. 
but therefore it has become somewhat controversial. And therefore, we will not be both here locally and this specific expression of Christ's body in Carrollton King's Chapel, but we also will not be the church globally that God has called and empowered us to be until we come to understand the gifts that he has given to us, the spiritual gifts that we have given to us and applied into our lives by the Holy Spirit. So, three things I want to look at this morning from this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to spend most of our time in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 16, as I read at the beginning. But you may also be familiar with this, that 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is a three-chapter address by Paul. So we're looking at some passages there as well. The first thing I want you to see, if we're going to understand spiritual gifts, is we have to see the vision for the Spirit's gifts. What is God's vision in giving us gifts? The Spirit's vision for the giving of gifts is that we would be a unified but diverse body that expresses and displays Christ's beauty in this world. That is why he has given us gifts, that we might be a unified but diverse body that displays the beauty of Jesus' face and his power into this world. Paul says it here at the very beginning. He actually talks about it in verses 4 through 6. He focuses first on our unity as a body. He uses this idea of a human body. And the unity of the human body is a very, very important thing. Paul actually uses the word one here seven times in the verses four through six. He describes the basis of this body, where it comes from. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. It means this, that everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to everyone else who belongs to Jesus. That you are interconnected in a spiritual way with everybody who is connected to Jesus in this room. As an old seminary professor of mine used to say, that what that means for us as a body is this. That means that when you cry, I ought to taste salt. And then when I cry, you ought to taste salt. That we are that interconnected and that unified with one another. Paul explains that we're a body, but we're not just like any just any, like any body, the body is made up, just like any body, we are made up of different parts. It talks about it, goes into great length in 1 Corinthians 12, and it talks about how we're not just all one eye, we're not just all a hand or an ear. Paul in verses 4, 5, and 6 stresses the unity of the body, but then in verse 7, he takes a, a significant turn. So it's unity, 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 it's the body, and then what does he say in verse 7? But to each one of us, a different grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. Different dolings out of Christ's grace. He was talking about one, but now he's talking about the many. Each of us, separately, individually. He was talking about unity, and now he's talking about what? Diversity. It's where we get the word university. A unity in the midst of diverse schools of thinking and, and study. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13 brings this to the forefront as well. It says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And what that means is there is a unity in the midst of diversity. And there's also a diversity that becomes a unity. You know, or your coin, if you were to look at a quarter that you may have, you, you may not use coins very often. Most of my coins just go straight to my children because I have no use for them just about anymore. I have something called plastic. 
And my plastic says Bank of America. But your coin, your coin actually says some significant things. Your coin says, it talks about liberty, right? And it says, in God we trust. And then what else does it say on your coin? E pluribus unum, which means what? From the many, one. It is descriptive of what our nation is supposed to be, but is also descriptive of what we are to be like as a church, that we are to be a transcontinental, transracial, transgifted church. We are part of a group for which Christ has died, and God has brought us individually into this corporate body. So that's the point we're making. That's the vision, is that we would be more and more unified by these gifts. The diversity of our gifts would actually not be a means of separating us and driving us apart, but it would be a means of God actually making us a more beautiful expression of Christ's unified body in this world. And so here's what I'm going to do for each of these points, because there's so much to cover in regards to these points, in regards to the spiritual gifts, and some wisdom of how this applies into our life as a church. I'm going to give you some implications for each of these points. The first one has three implications. Here's your first implication for the fact that we are, for the vision, the Spirit's vision, that we are to be a unified, a diverse body. Implication one, that connection to the body is therefore critical. Connection to the body is critical. The body, of course, has parts, and those parts are not just committed to each other, right? Your hand and your ear are not looking at each other and just going, you know, I have a deep commitment to you. No, that they are knitted together. They are actually connected together in a living and organic way. When the early Christians were saved, they didn't simply just wander off all by themselves and determine how they were going to live out this spiritual life. Actually, and this is very interesting, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God falls and regenerates people and transforms people's lives, gives them gifts, you know how it describes when those people are saved, the description of it? It is not, hey, they walked an aisle. It is not that they made a decision for Jesus. It was not even the biblical language of they were born again. No. The language it says in Acts chapter 2 to determine how someone, to know that someone was saved, it said this, is that 3,000 entered the church. In other words, there cannot be any dichotomy between those who say that they're saved and those who say they're part of the church, the part of the body of Jesus Christ. So are you knitted to the church? Do you look at the church as integral to your life as your hand being connected in its usefulness to the rest of your body? It is one of the few comforts I have in life, isn't it? It's one of those things I really don't have to think about it. It's really great. I don't, have to, I, have to, I don't have to worry about this, that when I go to sleep at night, that my hand or a part of my leg has not wandered off in the middle of the night. It has remained connected to me. And hand doesn't just do, it's, it's, and so it finds all the members of my body, finds their worth and finds their value and finds their significance in being connected to my body. You know what, I, when I was in, um, in Budapest, Hungary, I had the opportunity, like if you're in Europe, like any kind of place, you, you kind of wander into various cathedrals, and after a while, they kind of all begin to look the same. But there's, you can find some various things, and there was one particular saint who was um, very kind of, he was, he was a great saint in this particular church, in this particular region in Europe, and so after he died, they had cut off his hands. 
and they had put it under a glass. And if you paid about two euro, the light of the glass would come on and you could see this venerable saint's hand right there in front of you. You know what good a hand without the body is? Nothing, it's just creepy and weird. It might be a decent doorstop or something to creep somebody out with on a Halloween night, but if it's not connected to the body, it's of no use. Stephen Wright, who is a creepy and weird comedian, he likes to explore the bizarre. Some of you may know his humor. He said this, describing one of his, in one of his comedy acts, he said, I saw a man with a wooden leg and a, we- and a real foot. Wait for it. A wooden leg and a real foot. You see, you cannot have a living foot attached to wood. It has to be attached to your body. In the same way, if you're going to be somebody that is going to be any use to the kingdom of God, then you actually have to be attached to God's church. And by this, I don't mean some sort of ethereal thing like you go, oh, of course, yes, I'm attached to the invisible church. I'm just part of that kind of that, that broader, the invisible church that, of all the people that love Jesus. No, why do you think Paul uses the term body? Because it's a living, active, physical, fleshy thing. You can touch it, you can feel it, you can hear it, it can tick you off. It can annoy you. It can have things grow in weird places that you do not appreciate. And yet that is what Jesus' church is. We are not talking about the, the visible, ethereal, invisible church out there that you're kind of like, yes, I just use my, my gifts. No, we're talking about the physical church. I love this, this quote from an old pastor named Myron Augsburger. He was kind of a salty old preacher. But he has, a, he has this story about how a woman came to him and said that she was not going to, she didn't want to join their church and make vows to the church because she said this. She says, because I belong to the invisible church of Jesus Christ around the world. Well, a couple of months later, she came and um, told him she wanted to join the choir. And his response to her was, Madam, why don't you go ahead and just join the invisible choir? When Paul talks about engaging with the body, he is not talking about a bunch of things that are air. He is talking about actually God's institutional church, that we are to be an institution and an organism, a living, breathing thing. God's word that it tells us that it disconnected, we don't do much good. But if you're connected to the body, you can do great good. And if you stay connected to the body, so that's implication one. Implication two, you have a gift. That may be assumed, but understand you are given a gift. Let me just run through a couple texts here. But grace, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each of us, not some of us, each of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, The same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. 1 Peter 4, 10. As each one has received a gift. I want you to see the beauty of this. We are whose body, Christ's body, which means this, that each of you have been given a ministry ability that is part of the ministry ability of Jesus. That in some small way, shape, uh, way and form that you represent part of who Christ is and all of his glory and his beauty and his holiness as he lived on this earth. And I'm saying that our exercise of spiritual gifts is nothing less than Christ ministering through you individually and more profoundly through the whole body itself. Christ uses his people as his mouth, as his hands, as his feet in this world. And it comes, those gifts comes to each one of us. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom 
They are not the haves and the haves-nots. They are not those who've been given a gift and everybody else, some, there are people in the church who don't have any gifts. Everyone has been given a gift. You have a gift. You're not looking for some other experience of the Holy Spirit. You have a gift. You've been endowed with a gift from the moment you've been saved, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Are you trying to figure out what it is? Third implication is this, that the, this diversified body is fraught with opportunity. I had to look up how to spell fraught. And I use that word very specifically. Tim Keller talks about when he was 24 years old and his first pastoral job was in a little country town called Hopewell, Virginia. And in his first couple of weeks, he had this interesting encounter where three different people came to him and shared their opinions about what the church needed to be doing. And they, particularly all three people wanted to discuss the trailer park that was uh, right next to the church. There was a low-income, kind of blue-collar trailer park that was there right next to the property of the church. And the first person, Keller said, that came and said, you, you see those trailers over there? He said, none of those people come to our church. And do you know why? Because we're not reaching those people. Because this church, we're not, we're not engaging in evangelism. We're not sharing our, our faith. We're not going door to door over them and to them and sharing our faith with each, each one of those people. We don't have a heart for evangelism. So we ought to be over there each and every week, inviting them to church and sharing our faith. But we're not the kind of church that does that right now. He said, okay, I'll, t- I'll keep that in mind. Next week, somebody else comes by and he says, hey, pastor, you see that, that uh, trailer park over there? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know the problem with our church is we're not merciful enough. If we really want to reach that trailer park over there, then we need to be engaging with the physical needs of the people in that trailer park. We need to be going over there and being merciful, helping take care of those who are over there who are impoverished. We need to to, to learn how to deal with their economic problems. Keller said, okay, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Well, a week later, a third person came by, and this person said, hey, you see those trailers over there? said, yes, yes. You know what the problem with our church is? You know, we have a lot of people who, who want to do really good things. They want to share their faith. And they want to be reaching people with those who are impoverished and caring for their physical needs. But we can't get organized as a church. No one here knows how to organize people and arrange them for ministry. This is a, a, a church that we need to learn how to get organized so that we can train people and coordinate them for the gifts of God's people and God's goal and set goals. And we need to coordinate ourselves to reach those goals. The church is fraught with opportunity. You know, all those three people, Teller said, they're they're all right, aren't they? All three people had gifts that enabled them to look at that place from different eyes out of their gift sets. And all of them had had different gifts, and therefore they wanted to reach that place in line with their giftedness. Now, do you understand? Do you see there's a great opportunity for great good here and a great opportunity for what? Infighting. You can even kind of hear it in the tone that those people came to the pastor with, Right? There's an opportunity for contention and infighting because it's, hey, if everyone would just get on board with how I want to reach the trailer park, then we would be functioning as the body ought to be functioning. If we just had a heart for people's physical needs, if we could just counsel and shepherd people as they were meant to be shepherded, if we could only get people organized and set good goals and have good action steps and move through these, you see how there's great opportunity for a devaluing of what's going on and overvaluing what we bring to the table. Or also, do you see the great opportunity there to subvert great good, right? 
What if those three people got together and said, we want to take this place for the kingdom of God? We need to, because God's, God's gospel comes in word and deed. And we need someone to get us organized and have goals and, and move us forward. What if the church actually functioned in that way? We'd actually begin to see people come to know Jesus. We'd see people's lives changed. We'd see the church mobilized for work. You see, the church is like a mosaic. Little tiny fragile pieces that alone, they don't, they, they're not the whole, Right? You've seen a mosaic, it's all these different kind of shrapnel pieces of glass in various colors and various forms. But if you put them all together, an artist puts them together, and what? They look, the church looks like the face of Jesus. And it can do awesome things. And so this is fraught with opportunity. So, this is fraught with opportunity, so you need to keep looking at this. This leads to our second major point that I want to look at this morning, which is this, is the purpose of, for the Spirit's gifts, the purpose of the Spirit's gifts. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says this, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. We'll look at that next week. But why is he given various giftings and roles to the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, and what's that purpose for? For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So why has he given us gifts? For the church. For the church just to kind of get bigger and better. What specific reason? What is the church supposed to be growing into? It's supposed to be growing into looking more like Jesus. We're supposed to look like Jesus in every place that the spiritual gifts are talked about. It talks about and connects that those gifts are given not for our means, but for the common good of the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. 1 Peter 4, 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. So why has God given you a gift? For you? For your glory? No, it's for this place and for these people and for this city and for this world. God has given you these gifts so that each one of us may look more like Jesus. Did you know that every single one of you is discipling everybody else in this room? You are part of a discipleship process. Discipleship does not simply happen in a life-on-life relationship or simply happen in worship on a Sunday morning or simply happen because somebody preaches or simply happens because somebody does mercy and cares for someone's physical needs. All of these are part of making us look more and more like Jesus. And so here are the implications. Very briefly, first, use your gifts for others. I, I know you were looking for something more profound. But that is the clear application, right? Use them. Let me just break that down. Use your gifts. Use your gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that spiritual gifts are manifestations. Now, when we think of the word manifestations, we think of some weird kind of spiritual mystical thing. Manifestations from the crypts. But it's not, manifestations means to make known, to bring to action, to make something visible that was once invisible. And that means your gift, you have not been given a gift to hide it, oh, to hide it under a bushel. Um, no, I will make my gift known. Right, we, 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 we make known how God has gifted us through action. 
A spiritual gift is an action. It's not who you are. A gift is what you do. It's what you've been given. And so they're your gifts. Everyone has a gift. So we said to use them, and they're our gifts. Everyone has a gift. Therefore, no one in this church, no one in God's household and his, and his body sits on the bench. No Christian is unemployed. We have 100% employment rate here. The church needs to be rescued from over a millennia of what we call clericalism, which is this view that the church hires a few professionals who do all the ministry for them. This is death to the church. That where the lay people look, walk, look around and they just look at the pastors and the, and the ministers, quote unquote, the, the people who are in charge and say, all right, monkey boys, let's see what you got. No, the call is that we are all to be ministers. So who are the ministers at King's Chapel? If you've taken our membership class, you, you'll have heard this before. The answer should not be Andrew and Andy are the ministers here. The answer should not be the elders of the ministers here. The answer should not be the elders and the deacons of the ministers here. The answers are at King's Chapel, the ministers are every member is the ministers. And then lastly, for others, the gifts are not given so you can be convinced of your own self-importance and to exalt yourself. And this is so important. And this is what makes us, can make us look radically different than the world around us. Can you imagine a people who use everything they've been given for the good of the people around them? Where we are not obsessed, where we don't show up to church week in and week out and year in and year out and say, all right, people, what you got for me? But no matter how weak and young we are, we would say, my goodness, I'm going to use what I have in order to share and bless those around me. Man, such a people would be stunningly beautiful. Believers are stewards of the gifts of God. We are messengers of God's goodness. In fact, it's almost, it's almost wrong to say the gifts are ours. Because the gifts actually, the gifts come from the Spirit by God's grace, but the gifts are for whom? The gifts are for the church. In the end, the true recipient of the gift is the church. And you're merely the messenger. You're merely the person who delivers the Christmas gifts to other people. God is the gift giver, the church is the recipient, and the individual person is the delivery boy of God's gift to the church. Paul actually says this in Romans chapter 1. He is explaining to the Roman church why he has to, he feels so compelled despite the fact that he's being jailed and being persecuted for his faith because he said this. He says, I owe it to you to share the gospel with Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because God has given him a gift. If he hoards that gift, he is stealing from the one who is to be the true recipient of that gift. This morning is an opportunity, let me ask you this, for you to ask yourself this question, and indeed is a question that you will stand before God and have to ask one day. What have you done with the gift and gifts that God has given you? You know, there's actually a whole parable about this, right? Terrible the stewards, that the... Jesus goes away, the master goes away, and he gives people various levels of gifts, and they're to invest them for the kingdom of God. So let me ask you this, whether you've got 10, 5, or 1, or 2, are you using your gifts for the kingdom of God? It is each member's responsibility to discover, develop, and exercise his and her gifts for the good of the church. Ben Weber's taught a class the last two summers at our church called Divine Design. 
We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, about how you can come to know your gifts. You can go talk to Ben. Ben has, has, has taught this class so well. You, try to just, you should act, be actively and intentionally trying to figure out how has God wired you and made you to serve in this place for good. The last thing you need to understand about gifts, the last point is this, and that's the source for the Spirit's gifts. The source of the Spirit's gifts. Verse 7 is so beautiful. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. What are the gifts? What are they? Spiritual gifts are God's grace to you. They are gifts. What is grace? It is an unmerited favor. It is, it is something, it is a gift to you. That's what God's grace is. Spiritual gifts are God's sovereignly bestowing upon you as he wills to each believer gifts that's of his grace. Do you know that you weren't just saved? His grace just keeps coming. Your salvation in Christ Jesus was just the beginning. You've been given gift upon gift upon gift. God does go out gifts. Understand this, though, about our gifts is God does not go dole out our gifts in the same measure to every person we see here. You see that in verse 7? Everyone has a gift, but not all have the same number or the greatness or depths of gifts. Right? We could say it like this. All are equally gifted, but not all are gifted equally. Every one of us in this room has a gift from God's. What's it say in verse 7? The measure according to Christ's gift. He has doled it out in various measures to each of us. Which means this. Two believers in the gift can have the, in this church can have the gift of teaching. Both of them have had, can have that gift from God. And one can have a greater measure of that gift than the other. That doesn't mean that the other hasn't been given the gift of teaching, but there are various measures in which God doles this out. Now, this defends our democratic impulse, but not our common sense, right? When we look around, we know that some people are more gifted than other people. That doesn't mean they're more godly. We cannot confuse and ought not confuse the spiritual gifts that God gives us and the spiritual fruit that is born of the spirits. But it also doesn't mean they are not godly. Simply because someone has greater gifts does not mean that they are therefore arrogant or less godly than the person who is, less, who is not as gifted than others in the church. It doesn't mean that God loves the more gifted more. And it does, not, it does mean that the gifted, though, have greater responsibilities. That to whom much has been given, much will be required, right, it says. Some have more, some have less, but the good news is all of us have something. We all have something. But I want you to see all this also about the nature of the spiritual gifts that God has given us, about the grace that he has poured out upon us, that they may, they may be connected to your natural talents. This is a question people often will ask, and perhaps we'll look at it a little bit next week. How do we discern our gifts? Well, we may have to look at our natural talents, but also understand this, that your spiritual gifts may be connected to your natural talents, but they are not dependent upon your natural talents. Let me explain this from a quote by J.R. Packer who wrote a book called Keep in Step with the Spirit. And here's what he says. The ability to speak or act in a particular way, performing ability as we may call it, is only a charisma, taking from the word uh, gift in the New Testament, charismata, a charisma, a spiritual gift, if and as God uses it to edify. Some natural abilities or talents that God has given, uh, he never uses in this way. 
while sometimes he edifies through performances, that two competent judges seem substandard. Here, let me explain that, because that's in, he's an English guy, and sometimes English guys says things, say things in a way that we can't understand them. What he's saying is that what makes a gift is that God uses you. Not how talented you are, but how much God has blessed that gift in your life for his use in his church. A talent is God's way of enriching his people at a creation or common grace level. A talent is one of the ways in which God beautifies and enriches the world around us. Some of you have accounting abilities at a talent with numbers. Some of you have artistic abilities. But a talent doesn't necessarily edify someone spiritually. Therefore, what a talent is or what a spiritual gift is, is, is with the degree that you are spiritually gifted is the degree to which God is blesses that movement in your life to care for other people. Are you using, is there a gift in your life that God appears to be using, whether you're very talented at it or not, but God for some reason seems to be using it in abundant ways. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. There are two great preachers from the 19th and into the 20th, early 20th century. Charles Spurgeon is known as perhaps the greatest preacher ever to come out of Britain. Spurgeon was known as being an unbelievably gifted preacher and speaker. In fact, he, was, he had such tremendous power that most believe that he had he not gone into ministry and had not become a, a great orator and preacher of the gospel, that he could have been prime minister because he held people so rapturously spellbound with his gift of communication. And God used his gifts and his ability and blessed it spiritually to bring many people to come to know Jesus. At the same time that Spurgeon was doing his ministry, in the States there was a guy named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was known for being a terrible speaker. He stuttered and he stammered, he hemmed and he hawed, he was downright boring, and he had terrible tone. And yet Moody is known for being, being part of the, one of the greatest revivals in the history of our country in which thousands upon tens of thousands came to know the Lord through his ministry. One was talented, one was not. Both were spiritually blessed. You get it now? There's a guy in, in Brookhaven, Mississippi, the previous place I was a pastor, the assistant pastor there, there was three, full time, three pastors on time, on, on staff there at the time, all full-time. Two of us had, the, had fairly the gifts of preaching and teaching. The associate pastor did not. He was a boring speaker. He couldn't put thoughts together in any kind of coherent manner. He, he had no, his voice inflections were not very great. And yet when he spoke, the church, things moved. Why? Because of the gift of the Spirit. What makes a gift a gift? What makes a gift a gift, a spiritual gift by God, is the blessing of God. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. He is like wind, and he blows where he wills, and he uses the talented and the untalented to bring his blessings about. Here's the implications for you then. Since spiritual gifts are all of grace, there is no room for jealousy and self-pity. You think D.L. Moody could have been jealous of Spurgeon? Maybe. See, we get into the old problem of people comparisons, even in regards to our spiritual gifts. Because our gifts differ in measure, we're going to find those around us in the church who may have the same gift as us, but they're just so much, just so, so much better at it than we are. And God seems, or maybe you look at them and they go, 
They're no good. And yet God seems to be blessing their ministry more. And I know I'm more skilled than they are in this area. If you spend time playing the comparison game, then you will find that this will result in one of two things. You may go grow bitter because you don't think anyone appreciates your gift. This happens so often in the church. This church just doesn't appreciate what I bring to the table. Poor me. This is a place where they, they love upfront people here. They love the people who can preach and teach in this church. They don't love the servants and the people who do things behind closed doors. They don't recognize what I bring. What does this do? This just creates a bitter spirit in the church and kills your joy. Or, so you may grow bitter, or you allow opportunities to exercise your gift to pass you by because of your sense of inadequacy in the way God has gifted you. You may be called, you may be gifted, but because you're playing the comparison game between you and the person down the pew in regards to this gift, you go, yeah, that's not for me because they're better at it than me. Brothers and sisters, this hurts the church. It hurts you. It hurts all of us when you have such a poor sense of self-pity and inadequacy. And frankly, some of you are missing out on God's blessings because you won't use the small gift. It appears to be your small gift for God's kingdom and God's glory. God says, I've called each of you for this particular place and this particular time, and I've given you particular gifts. So use them. Whether you get lots of glory and praise, or whether you think you're so good at it, or whether you think you're great at it, either way, use your gifts for my glory. Second implication, since spiritual gifts are of grace, there is no room for pride. It's a gift. You didn't create it. They're the results of grace. They cannot be a source of pride and arrogance. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the greatest kind of dialogue on the spiritual gifts. You know why Paul writes about the spiritual gifts for three chapters? Because the church of Corinth was dysfunctional because there were those who were running around who were saying, we have the greatest gifts. And if you want to be like us, and if you're truly spiritual, then you'll use these, you'll have these gifts of the spirits. And it was causing major problems in the church. They weren't using their gifts for the common good. Instead, they were bringing glory to themselves. They were causing, bringing attention to themselves, to their giftedness. Now, the main way this comes out to the church is what, I, what is often called, or has been called, heard called, gift projection. The way this pride carries itself forth in the church. This is where you have an attitude, or you view various activities of the church in view of your own giftedness and calling, In other words, that you attribute higher spiritual value and a higher spiritual maturity to the outworkings of a a particular spiritual gift. That if you were really spiritual, you would be helping poor people. That if you were really spiritual, you would have the gift of teaching and you know how to interpret the word and you would lead other people and through, through the teaching of the word. That if you were really spiritual, that this is what you would be doing. And various flavors of the church. Every church has this, right? We shape a personality around various giftings. And we can actually begin to laud and actually make people feel guilty in the church and saying, you know what? If you were really mature, you would have gifts that look like this. We should never confuse spiritual giftings with spiritual fruit. Those are two different things. So you can begin to take a higher view of yourself regarding your gift where you falsely attribute spiritual fruits because of your spiritual giftedness. And when you do that, you're in deep danger of a big fall. Your attitude, you attribute spiritual immaturity and unfaithfulness to those who don't share your giftedness. Hey, you don't shepherd like I do. 
So therefore, you must not be a good shepherd. Hey, you don't counsel the way I do. You don't teach. You don't have the gifts that I have. Therefore, you, there's something flawed in you. Brothers and sisters, this is destructive in God's church. The whole idea of spiritual gifts is that God, God has appointed us the gifts. It is of his grace. There is no place for pride. If you have been abundantly gifted with a particular gift and a particular calling, then you do that and you do that with gusto. And then you look around the room and you say, thank God they have been gifted differently than me. Praise the Lord that I never learned how to play. I couldn't figure out. I, could, I tried to do the college guys strumming a guitar thing. I was terrible at it. And it would be, and if I sat around and just, you know, just tried to keep playing, I would be bringing my terrible non-gift and trying to push it upon the church. Some of you are living because of your envy and your self-pity or because of your pride. You don't like your gift, and so you look at other people and you go, I want that gift, and you're not living into who God has made you to be. Or you're calling other people to live into something that God hasn't made them to be. Oh, we should have, we have such humility in regards to our gifts because it has come to you merely because of God's grace. I want to finish this morning by pointing to that grace very, very clearly and bringing us back to the wonder of promise of how you even got these gifts. They're gifts. Because when you see how these gifts came, I think it'll humble your hearts. And perhaps it'll make you thankful for the people around you. And perhaps it'll give you joyous confidence of what God may and will do through you. We read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. Now, I read through this section in verses 8 through 10. We haven't talked about it. And, and you may have read it and you go, oh, man, that's, what is this descending and, and down to the depths of the earth and the ascending? And what in the world is that? There's actually something quite profound. Here's what it said, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, it says that when he ascended, speaking of Jesus, on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Anybody want to volunteer to explain what that means? Here's what it says. Let me give you about 120 seconds, two minutes on this to bring us. In the ancient times, if a king was in a city and there was an enemy that was coming to destroy or he had an enemy that was uprising, he would go out and he would meet them and he would engage them in battle. He would leave his throne. He would leave the pleasures and the comforts of his city and the place that he had built around him. He would leave that place and he would go and do battle and he would fight the enemy. And if he won, so that's the descending of Jesus. And if he won, he delivered his people from oppression and captivity. And when he returned to his city, he would return triumphantly. And it's the picture here of a Roman victor who would come back in the city. And as he returned, he would have the captors behind him. The king of the uprising people. And he would come in, and not only would he have the captives behind them in, in display so everybody could, could mop the evil forces that he has destroyed, but then he would also take the bounty of all that he collected from his battles, and he would come and bring in the city and just throw it to everybody, distribute gifts bountifully in the city. This is the picture. Now, what Paul is doing is he's taking this and he's applying it to Jesus. And he's saying, in the case of Christ, what did Christ do? What was his dissension? He left the throne. And who are the captives that Jesus comes? Who are the enemies that Jesus comes to deal with? Who has he defeated? The, the, the powers of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness. Colossians 2.15 says this, that Jesus came and he disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He crushes the sin and death and the devil. Jesus descended. That is key. 
He descended from the comforts of his throne to come and make war. He descended from heaven to earth, from honor and glory to down into the battles where he experienced abuse and rejection and torture and death. He was humiliated. When it says he goes down to the depths of the earth, it's talking about hell. He goes down and experiences hell for us. He was destroyed. He descended. Why? Because he was defeating sin and death. And Jesus did it. He, he did this victory. He brought about this victory through the cost of his life. But then he doesn't stay dead, does he? He descends, and then what's he say? He descended so that he can then ascend. Ascend. You see, when he ascends to heaven, he sits on the throne room of heaven. And Matthew chapter 28, we see that he goes up there. And what does it say? That he drags behind him. He drags sin and death and the devil wisdom so that we might taunt them with Jesus. The gifts, and then what does he do from heaven? When does the Spirit come? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Why? Go therefore because I will always be with you. Who is the who? He's going to send the Spirit. That Jesus has come. He has descended. He has defeated sin and death and the devil. He's dragged them off behind him. And then he's also distributed gifts of the Holy Spirit to you and I. And it's from this position as a conquering king that he in his grace and his goodness, who has done everything, you did nothing. He accomplished it all. He did all the work. He went and did the battle, and it's from his position of power and authority and conquering. And here's what that means, that all the gifts, no matter how small the gift that he has given you, how, no matter how few gifts he has given you, that they are endowed with the power of the king who sits on high, who has already won the victory, and is going to bring it to completion one day through the use of your gifts. So do not belittle your gifts, brothers and sisters. Be thankful for them. Be awed by the gifts of the people around you who look like part of what Jesus has done in this world. And be thankful of this, that because of those gifts, God is bringing his kingdom to bear in this world and making it manifest and making the name of Jesus known throughout this world and bringing a change to this world that we can all rise up and say, I'll vote to that. That's the gifts that he has given. It's all of his grace. So, brother and sister, in joyful adoration and thanksgiving, would you take up, would you, would you be intentional about finding what is your gift and using it with all of your energy and all of your talent and all of your strength to use those spiritual gifts for the glory of Jesus' name? We'll talk more about how to do that next week. Let's pray. Lord, the second we start talking about things that you've given us, <laughs> we become really self-focused. And Lord, we, we, we've, got some, we've got some evaluation to do of ourselves to figure out how have you gifted us, Lord? How have you shaped us and designed us to be Jesus in this place? Oh, but gracious God, I pray that we would never muddle in the mud of comparison that, Lord, our sense of giftedness would not be looking around at other people and comparing them, them to us. But, Lord, you would lift us up to something far greater, to your accomplishments of your grace, that you then by your spirit have then endowed upon us with power and might. Lord, fill us with joy, with joy of what you have done in Christ Jesus. Fill us with joy for the gifts of the Holy Spirit and fill us with a, a, a loving desire to use them for the good of the people around here and for the good of the city 
and for the beautification of this world. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.